again. It's good to be together. Hey, today is a special day on the church calendar. I don't mean uh, the First Baptist Church calendar, but the global church calendar. It's Pentecost Sunday, which is a day that the church collectively remembers Pentecost, which happened in Acts chapter 2, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the believers that were gathered there. It's where the church saw and recognized this new era of, of history where God would relate to us by his personal presence indwelling every believer. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. We worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uh, has several jobs, if you could put it that way, several ways that he works. But one of them is to uh, fill us and empower us for service and ministry, to empower us to live Christ-like lives. And also, the Holy Spirit uh, opens our eyes and convicts us of sin and helps us understand the Word of God. It's not by our own strength or our own insights that we can understand the truths of Scripture, but it's by the help of the Holy Spirit. So it seems fitting today on Pentecost Sunday to pray now for the Spirit's help as we approach the Word of God for our time in the Word. So would you pray with me one more time? God, we thank you that you dwell within us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for your grace and your love and your presence that you are near. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, point us to Jesus, Help us to see the truth of the gospel. Help us to understand your word. Would you convict us and change us? Be at work in our hearts, we pray. Thank you, God, for your presence here and your love. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, go ahead and open your Bible to the book of Jonah, chapter 3. We're halfway through the book, now starting the second half Go ahead and turn there now. And while you're turning there, I want to look together or think together about the concept of apologies. Apologies. It seems like a lot nowadays we're seeing public apologies, right? Either from government officials or athletes or people in power in various industries. We're seeing people caught in sin and destructive behavior and They're being forced to apologize, which I'm grateful for. Some of these dark, uh, horrific things that have been happening are coming to the light, and we're seeing public figures acknowledge what they've done and publicly apologize. But have you ever noticed that sometimes the apologies are not very good apologies? They seem forced or less than sincere, kind of downplay what happened, or they're really vague and kind of general, and it leaves you a little bit unsatisfied. It just wasn't a very good apology. There's this website called sorrywatch.com that was created to evaluate apologies. They look at apologies made publicly, and they evaluate them. Are they good or bad? And they have a section on their website called bad apologies. And so I was perusing this, and I came across one that was noteworthy. I want to share with you. We're going to look at it together. It was from this Italian tennis player last year during a tournament. He got really heated during this match, and he yelled some unsavory things at the referee. 
It was a female umpire. He yelled some things. I'm not going to quote what he said, but just trust me, it was not good stuff, okay? And later that day, he was getting some heat for it, and so he issued an apology for the things that he said. And we're going to look at his apology together and see if this was a good apology or not, okay? He said this, I would first apologize to you fans and the referee about what happened today. It's just been a very bad day. But this does not forgive the behavior in the match. Although I'm a hothead, and though in my opinion, having been right in most circumstances, I made a mistake. Then at the end of the day, it's only a game of tennis. Is this a good apology? No, it's not good. Let's think about why. It starts off strong. I first want to apologize. Okay, all right, I'm with you. To you, to the referee. It's just been a very bad day. He sort of excuses his behavior because it was a bad day. And even though he says it doesn't forgive the behavior, still, why bring it up then? It's been a bad day. And you notice how he talks about his behavior? What does he call it? The behavior. Right? Not my behavior, not what I did, but the behavior, as if it's just some entity out here separated from him. Not his behavior. He says, I'm a hothead, but let me tell you, I'm usually right about the things I'm arguing in most circumstances, just so you know, I usually have it right. And then he says, what? I made a mistake. Is mistake really the best word choice here? A mistake is something you do when you spill some Cheerios in the kitchen, when you accidentally trip over something. That's a mistake. It seems like yelling obscenities and profane things at another human being is maybe a bit bigger than a mistake, maybe a bit more than that. And then the ultimate, (laughs) at the end of the day, it's only a game of tennis. Can everybody just calm down, please? It's a game of tennis. What a horrible apology. He's excusing his behavior, downplaying it, distracting us with his normally right arguments, calling it a mistake. This is awful. And yet, I bet as we think about some of those tactics he's used in his apology, we've probably done similar things in our own lives. We're not always the best at apologizing. Maybe you've noticed this in your your marriage or in your family or in close friendships. We're not always the best at apologizing. We excuse things or try to downplay things or distance ourselves from what actually happened. And this is a problem in our relationships with one another and in our relationship with God. We're going to see from Jonah chapter 3 that There's a better way to respond to our sin and to our errors, the things that we do that we should not do. And we're going to see in Jonah chapter 3 the right way to respond to our sin, the right way to apologize. I'll show you what I mean. Let's start chapter 3, verse 1, the story continues. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. If you've been with us the past few weeks, you know that these words sound pretty familiar to the way the book started in chapter 1. In fact, the words here are almost identical to the opening words of the book. Jonah, 
want you to go to the great city of Nineveh. But how did it work out the first time? Not very well. Jonah runs the other direction, and rather than going to Nineveh, he goes where? Tarshish. The opposite direction. Away from God's call on his life. And while he's running, God sends a storm to get his attention. Jonah gets tossed into the sea, drowning in the bottom of the ocean. We think he's going to die. The fish comes, scoops him up, spits him back out on land. God miraculously rescues him and saves him. And that's where chapter 2 ended. So we pick up now in chapter 3 after Jonah's Houdini attempt has failed with the word of the Lord again coming to Jonah. Here's the mission, the assignment before him that started this whole sequence of events as if God is saying, let's try this again. Didn't take very well the first time, so here we go. Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and proclaim this message. Now, can we just stop together for a moment and appreciate the kindness and the patience of God that we see in these verses? Even in the very beginning of this chapter, God calls Jonah to Nineveh, repeats the command, but notice he simply repeats his words. Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh. He doesn't say, Jonah, go to Nineveh, and by the way, Remember what you did last time? By the way, come here, let me, let me remind you of your failures. Let me remind you of your disobedience. Let me remind you of your bad decisions. Don't do that again, Jonah. Make sure not to screw this up this time, Jonah. He doesn't belittle Jonah. He doesn't make Jonah feel small. He simply says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. And his patience he simply repeats his command, giving Jonah an opportunity to obey. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see that, I think God is more patient than I am. Because sometimes if I have to repeat instructions, I, I get a little frustrated. Or it's my tendency maybe to remind someone of how not to do it or their past failures. But God just says, no, here's another opportunity, Jonah. Would you go to Nineveh? This time, Jonah obeys. We read in verse 3 what we expected to read in chapter 1. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. He sets off for this city, which has kind of faded into the background over the past few weeks. We haven't talked about Nineveh a lot, but now it's on the forefront of the story. And what do we know about Nineveh? If you can remember or see in the text here, what it's a, it's a great city. It's an important city. It's a city that matters. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. It's influential. Also, the text tells us it is a large city. It takes three days to go through it. And archaeologists have discovered ancient Nineveh, and they've seen that it was, in fact, massive by ancient standards. It's a huge city. And the idea here that it took three days to go through it is not as much to walk from one end to the other. It took three days, but it gives the idea of Jonah going through the city, delivering this message of God, maybe stopping at the gates and the temples and the important places, uh, bringing the word of the Lord. That process would take about three days. It was a large task. So Jonah's, or excuse me, Nineveh is an important city. It's a large city. 
But if you remember from chapter 1, it's also what? A, a wicked city. It's a city that's known for its sin and violence. It's brutal treatment of enemies and surrounding nations. They were enemies of the people of God. They were not good people, you could say. And so now, as Jonah goes to this large, important, wicked city, we have a front row seat to what will take place as the story continues. And we see Jonah in chapter 4 finally deliver the word of God. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, it says, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all he says. It's five words in Hebrew. It's rather short and harsh. The city will be overthrown, he says, upended. It's a word of judgment, a word of destruction. This is the ultimate doom and gloom sermon. As if he gathers the city and says, thanks for being here today, everybody. So glad you came. This place is going to burn to the ground. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> and really, that's, that's all he says. If we're honest, this, this leaves us wanting, doesn't it? It leaves us a little bit unsatisfied. There's so much, it seems, that's left out. He doesn't mention what the people of Nineveh have done wrong exactly, which prophets normally do. He doesn't mention who is going to upend the people. He doesn't mention the name of God. He doesn't mention how to make things right. Hey, Jonah, what are you doing? It's almost as if he's intentionally withholding information from them, simply saying, this place is going down. That's all he gives them, just the bad news without any good news mentioned. Now, although the message is incomplete, I think we can learn something from Jonah here. It's going to be a little uncomfortable to talk about, but we should commend Jonah for at least being willing to, to give the bad news. He brings a message of, of, of judgment. The city is wicked. They deserve condemnation from God for their sins. This is an uncomfortable thing for us to talk about today, if we're honest. I mean, we like being the ones that bring good news, right? Your baby's healthy. You're getting a promotion. God loves you, and you're awesome and wants you to have a great life. We love saying good things. It's a little harder when we start to talk about sin being separated from God, condemnation, judgment, wrath against sin. Maybe even now we're getting a little uncomfortable in the room. Maybe you're regretting that today was the day you brought a friend to church. <laughs> no, it's, it's hard because in today's spiritual climate, it's so foreign to think about this concept. It seems like all we hear today, whether it's podcasts or in uh, just the culture at large, there's this sense of positive spirituality out there, right? That there's this benevolent force of some kind out there that just wants to give you good things, just wants to 
to bless you in very vague, general ways. There's really not room for, for judgment or, or the wrath of God against sin or a holy and righteous God that, that condemns evil. It seems so very, maybe even wrong for some of us. You know, how, how could you talk about God in such a way? And yet we see it in the text. And we see it not just in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. And not just some obscure teaching of the New Testament. We see it repeatedly and we see it in the words of Jesus. Think with me of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, and narrow is the way to life. Later in that chapter, verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Wow, Jesus, that's harsh. He's saying some will come to me on the day of judgment and say, we're, we're good, right? I was a good person, right? I even did some things in your name, right? He said, I never knew you. And they're sent away. So we see Jesus talking about a broad path that leads to destruction and sending away those that might think they're okay with God to death, not to life. This is a hard word. Now, don't get me wrong, there's good news to share. We're going to get to the good news of the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God. That's what we celebrate every week. But first, we have to look at the bad news. Because if the doctor is not honest about the condition, then you can't receive the right treatment or the right medication. We have to recognize the problem that we stand guilty before a holy and righteous God because of our sin. We all have gone astray and crossed the line, broken the law of God in any number of ways. In our pride, in our, our lust, in our greed, in our, our violence, in our abuse. Countless ways we've harmed others, we've offended God, we've done things our own way. And at the heart of all of this is not just, oh, God's worried that we crossed a line here or there. The idea is that our whole disposition is rather than worshiping God and putting Him at the center of our lives, we've turned from Him and are worshiping ourselves or, or worshiping other things and rather giving praise and, and honor and glory to the God of all creation. We worship ourselves or reject Him or, like Jonah, run away from Him and do things our own way. And there are consequences for sin we see in Scripture. Not because God is just mad and 
and, and grumpy and wants to lash out at someone. No, because God is a God of truth and justice, a God who deals with sin as it deserves to be dealt with, a God who doesn't just sweep sin under the rug and wink at the evildoers in the world. No, he, he deals with sin. He holds us accountable. God has a, a calculated, real posture against sin. To punish sin. And I think that as maybe that sounds foreign or harsh to us, I think we think deeply about this. This is a comforting truth. This is a, a needed truth in our world because we look at our world and the injustice that is there and the, the evil that is there, the violence, the abuse, all the things that are wrong in our world. And we say, God, would you make things right? God, would you hold people accountable for what they've done? God, would you not just sweep things under the rug and look the other way as people abuse and hurt and kill one another? God, would you do something about this? And so the scriptures actually, they don't hide this truth. The scriptures rejoice in and celebrate that God is a God of judgment who sets things right. We just don't like when that gets applied to us. We don't like when applied to us because sometimes we think our sins aren't that big or aren't that bad, but Scripture reminds us that we all have sinned. We all have offended God and damaged His good world. So that's the bad news. And now I don't recommend going out and preaching like Jonah on a street corner today uh, because, again, his message is incomplete. His message is incomplete. But I think we can learn from Jonah and say he was, he was willing to share the bad news. And that's part of the message today. But we'll see how Nineveh responds. Verse 5, what did they do? It says, the Ninevites, the people of Nineveh, they believed God. And a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his anger, his fierce anger, so that we will not perish. I mean, the people of Nineveh respond miraculously well, do they not? And it starts with verse 5. They believed God. Somehow, even through Jonah's minimalist message, they understood that this message was from God. They had offended God, and they didn't argue it. They didn't try and excuse themselves or say, oh, really, or is it really that bad? They just, they believed. They said, okay, we agree. And then they fasted. They abstained from food. This was uh, something that often accompanied confession, times of seeking God, times of repentance. And then they put on sackcloth, you notice that, which was a very coarse material. 
kind of picture like a burlap sack, but worse. And so they put that on. It was kind of itchy, and it was scratchy. And people would do this as a part of the uh, repentance process, uh, part of a visual display of their grief. It would be a reminder as they were wearing it of their, their state where they're uncomfortable and they've caused sin and issues uh, and, and broken the law of God. Sackcloth was this reminder. And you notice even the king does this. All the people, and even the king, comes off his throne, took off his royal robes, and put on a burlap, scratchy sack thing to remind him of what he had done and what the people had done. And he sat down in the dust, another sign of repentance and, and grieving. You notice the decree went out even to the animals? Even the animals are wearing sackcloth? Even the animals are kept from, from eating? Even the cows can't have a snack? And it's showing the totality of the city's repentance. The totality of how the people are, are turning to God in repentance. Now, if sorrywatch.com were to do an evaluation of this apology, I think they do pretty well, don't you think? I think sorrywatch.com would say the people of Nineveh deserve an A plus for how they repented, how sincere their apology was to God. Because what did they not do? You notice what the people of Nineveh didn't do? They didn't minimize what they'd done. They didn't argue it. They didn't say, yeah, it's not really that bad, or yeah, it was a long time ago, or yeah, so-and-so made me do it, or yeah, have you seen how many people that guy killed? I'm not that. No, none of that. They didn't minimize it. They didn't just call them mistakes. Some mistakes were made. The behavior was kind of bad. Oh, they, they didn't claim ignorance. Right? We, just, we didn't know. I didn't know. No one ever taught me this. I never read this before. My parents never taught me this. This is just all I knew. I, ne- I never know. They didn't try and claim ignorance. They didn't shift the blame. This was my parents' fault or my family that I grew up in. They taught me this. Or my friends and, and uh, peer pressure is what caused this. This is just how I'm wired. No, there, no excuses. No blame shifting. No dodging the issue. No bad apologies. Now, if you've been in any relationship, but especially a close relationship, maybe you're married, maybe close friendships, family relationships, you've probably seen some bad apologies in your life. Maybe in conflict with your spouse, you've noticed someone saying that they're sorry, though you're not sure they're really sorry. Sometimes, man, we just say sorry to, to move past the issue, and we're not even sure what we're sorry for, but we know we're supposed to say it. Or is that just me? Okay, that's just me. Fair enough. Now, or sometimes people, we do apologies that are backhanded, right? I'm sorry that you were offended. I'm sorry that you are so sensitive. I'm sorry that this happened. But we see with apologies like that, it doesn't really repair the relationship, does it? doesn't really allow us to move forward because what's missing, what's missing is a genuine acknowledgement of the wrong 
that we've done. Genuinely acknowledging, I have done wrong. I've done what I should not do. Isn't that what you want to hear from your spouse, from your friends? I'm sorry. Not going to play games, not going to excuse this, not going to try and point your attention over here. No, just, I'm at fault. I'm sorry. I should not have done that. I hurt you. And you can't really move forward in a healthy and right way until that is recognized. It's the same with God. Until we say, God, confess that I have broken this relationship. Not going to downplay it, not going to justify it, not going to make excuses. I'm at fault. And I need you to forgive me. Right? That's what works with our relationships horizontally, and that's what God expects of each of us. And this is why we can look to Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3 and see that they did it right. They believed God. They showed genuine conviction in their hearts as they were fasting and wearing sackcloth. And then you saw, this is big, they, they called mightily to God. They turned to God in prayer, seeking God's mercy. And then they gave up their violence and their evil ways. So their, their repentance was not just in word. It was not just, I'm sorry, God. Thanks for the forgiveness, God. See you in heaven, God. That's not what they did. They, they said that they called out to God for forgiveness, but then they, they changed how they were living. They turned from their evil ways, and they turned toward God and toward His ways. See, the Christian life is not just about heaven or eternal life with God later. It also is about a changed and transformed life now. How are we living different? How are we as Christians becoming people of love and compassion and justice and grace in our world, turning from our sins? As Christians, we should be the best repenters in the world because we recognize our ways and what Scripture says about us. And so this is why we can look to the people of Nineveh as one of the best examples in all of Scripture. They're held up as a model of repentance, as a model of Faith, a model of responding to God of good apologies. And so I think we can learn from them and really follow the, the steps that they took in our own lives. When we see our own sin, whether it's for the first time, we've never responded to Jesus and acknowledged our sin and reconciled to God, or whether it's as a Christian each day, however often we need to repent of the sins that still crop up in our lives. What do we do first? Believe. How can we first just recognize, God, what you say is true? What you say about this behavior, this thought, this attitude, what you say about it is correct, and, and I'm not living in line with it. I'm not obeying you here, and you're right. Step two, pray sincerely. Call urgently to God, and they do it with a genuine heart. It's genuine prayer, Right? They're convicted, they're fasting, they're putting on sackcloth. They're, in every way, it seems that they're getting what they've done and calling out to God. It's not just a, hey, God, forgive me, please. No, it's genuine, Lord, what I've done is wrong. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. And then, after we believe and genuinely pray, we change our ways. We turn 
from our sin, as you see, they gave up their evil ways. So we too ought to live differently when we repent. Turn from our sin and start to obey the Lord. We see that when the people of Nineveh did this, in verse 9, it was in hopes that God would be merciful to them. You see what they said? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Who knows? They didn't even have enough information to know how God would respond. But he said, let's, let's try this. Let's try to get right with God. And we see how God answers in verse 10. God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God saw their repentance. And he responded and, and did not bring destruction. He responded with compassion. He responded with mercy. They did not receive the consequences, consequences of sin and judgment and death and condemnation that they deserve. No, they received mercy and grace. See, the bad news is bad, but the good news is better. Because God is merciful. And the same is true for us. We're like Nineveh. We deserve judgment. We deserve separation from God because of our sin. And yet, through faith in Christ, we can be forgiven. Ephesians 2 puts it this way in the New Testament. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, I'll say it again, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Over and over again, how are we blessed? It's in Christ. It's through the work of Jesus and faith in him. God in his great love is rich in mercy and does not give us what we deserve, but he gives us grace and life and forgiveness and a relationship with him. See, what the Ninevites could only hope would be true, who knows, maybe God's gracious. We can be confident. God is gracious. God is merciful. His word shows us this. His word tells us who he is, of his love and his mercy and his compassion, that through Christ, because he took the punishment and the judgment that we deserved, it was placed on Jesus so that we, through faith, could be forgiven, reconciled to God, healed, adopted, given new life forever with him. See, if we respond to the bad news like Nineveh did, we'll experience the good news and what Jesus has done. We're about to transition to a time of communion together to celebrate what God has done for us. But I just want to say, if you're here today, I just want to recognize you might be here and still thinking that that pastor is crazy. <laughs> I mean, really, like this pastor is so outdated, uh, so uh, crusty, even though he's young. Um, 
And I get that you might not be buying what I'm trying to share with you. I'm not naive enough to think that that's not possible. And if that's you today, I just want to urge you to consider the words of Jesus. Consider the words of Jonah chapter 3. That This is not something I'm making up. This comes from the Word of God. And so you might not agree. You might still be processing through this. But just, just know clearly, hear me clearly, that this is what God says about the human condition. Deserving of judgment and condemnation, but can be forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ and so deeply loved. God is longing for you to turn to him. So what we're going to do now together as a church is celebrate communion, where we come to the table and and do what? We remember what Jesus has done for us. His body, represented by the bread, broken for us. His blood, poured out for us, for the forgiveness of sins. So as we come and take the elements, we celebrate and remember the work of Jesus. And that because of him, we're welcomed to the table of God, both now and forever. So we're going to have a time. Uh, the music's going to be playing. I invite you to come forward to one of the stations as you are ready. Uh, we practice an open table here, which means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you're visiting, you are welcome to participate and celebrate with us. And if, if you're not a believer and you're not uh, sure where you're at, We encourage you to just stay seated, reflect on what we've talked about, and uh, reflect on the words of the music. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word that reveals to us what is true about you and ourselves. Even though some of these truths are uncomfortable and maybe contradict our own thoughts, our own assumptions, our own wishes, God, we humbly come and say that we, we believe you. And we believe that your sacrifice, Jesus, was for our sins. You died so that we could receive life. And so as we take these elements in obedience to you, we remember you, Jesus. Thank you for your death for us. Thank you for giving us now new life in you. We worship you today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.